Welcome to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. We look at revitalization in real time, examining the ups and downs of revitalizing and replanting historic and legacy churches throughout New England and the U.S. Now here's your hosts. Well, it is, um, it, it's incredibly humbling to be up here and then to follow Pastor Andy. I was thinking, maybe they'll just go home. They won't have to hear me, um, but I, I'm, I really have no credentials at all, all right? I have just been blessed uh, everywhere God has um, put me, he's put me in, you know, I'm just, I got, Pastor Steve set up an incredibly amazing church, and my prayer is just don't mess it up, you know, don't drive it into the ditch, and, um, and then I think about just being here in this place, it brings back a lot of memories. Um, you know, 2012, February 2012, I preached um, a message here, not knowing really this congregation, just praying that um, they would see something in me and, and let me pastor them. And they loved me. They loved our family, and we are forever indebted for this church. I, I just tried to keep it going and then to see what God has done here is absolutely overwhelming. And uh, really, I'm grateful that this story of what Pastor Chris has done here and the leadership, and I see some of the deacon leadership that's been here. They know the stories. They lived through a lot. Um, but uh, this is an amazing story, and it needs to be told. Pastor Steve has helped t- tell this story. Um, uh, in a minute, we'll I'll talk a little bit more about um, what he's done and his faithfulness. But um, praise God, this story is being told um, because I hope and pray it's encouraging to you. Um, if you got your Bibles with you, Genesis 22, Genesis 22, I, I don't know what else to do but to kind of share with you what God is doing in my life. We're preaching, I've been preaching through, we've been walking through the book of Genesis. And if you're like me, preaching is incredibly personal um, because it hits me first. And I love that about preaching because it's made me, um, hopefully, a better man. Um, And so I get emotional when I preach. Um, I think some people make fun of me. My wife says, you didn't cry. That's an amazing feat when I don't cry in one of my messages. But honestly, it is personal. Um, Because all I'm doing is sharing with the congregation what God has been doing in my heart through the study of his word. And so, just want to kind of share with you uh, what God's been doing in my life as we've been studying the life of Abraham. And what you see with Abraham, is same, you see an example of what it looks like to walk by, by faith with God. We really get the, the prime example of what it means to walk by faith. And what we see is Abraham has entered into a school of faith. Every one of us know Jesus Christ. We're in a school of faith. And uh, if there's one thing you see throughout Scripture, it's that God's looking for a people who will simply trust Him. You know, God, Jesus, you think about the New Testament, He was never amazed by anything but faith. He never looked at Matthew and said, boy, you sure are good with numbers. we got to have you on our team. But you remember the Roman centurion. I've never seen the, the Syrophoenician one. Never seen faith like this. Never amazed by anything but faith. And from beginning to end, you see God just looking for a people who will trust him, 
who will take him at his word and, and trust him with absolute obedience. So we enter into the school of faith and, and we, you know, I, I love this about God. Sometimes we fail and it's okay. He just makes us to do the year over again, you know. And we see Abraham, he fails and God lifts him back up and he gets to do it again and he moves forward. But what God is doing in Abraham's life is what he's doing in our life. He's bringing us to a place of absolute trust and faith. He's bringing us to a place where we hold nothing back. And so um, let's just look at this text. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll work our way through this chapter. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would never get over the fact that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. That you've not left us to our own devices to try to figure out how to live this life. That you've, you've shown yourself to us and who you are and who we are and how we interact with you. And God, I pray that you would make your word alive today. I pray that you'd bless the study of it. I pray that we would hear your voice. And God, I pray you'd change us. God, as, as, having heard your voice in your word this morning, I pray that we'd be changed. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So look at Genesis 22, verse 1. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And so here we see God is testing Abraham. Uh, these tests that Abraham will have over and over and over again in his life. And um, some he will fail. You remember, uh, some he succeeds. He, God initially calls him. Um, you you want to see where faith begins. You got to go back to chapter 12. And faith began with God speaking into Abraham's life. He simply heard a word from God. And what would, by the way, what was the first word that Abraham heard from God? Leave. Go. And uh, you see there, beginning of faith is that people of faith are always leaving what they're comfortable with and going to something better that God has for them. And he had to leave. And Abraham just got up and left and he obeyed. But then what happened? God brought a famine. And what did he do? He didn't trust God. And he went down to Egypt and he got himself in all kinds of trouble and he failed. And then he, just a series of tests. And what God does in Abraham's life, he does in my life. That God brings me and my wife through tests where he knocks out props from underneath us and he puts us in these positions where he, he stretches us and grows us. Why does God test us? Is it just that God's mean, that God loves to see us squirm? No, it, it, we know what God is doing. He, he's, he's changing us. God tests us because he knows that the only life that's really worth living is a life of absolute trust and obedience in him. And so he's bringing Abraham to that place. Well, then look in verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Notice how God describes Isaac. I want your son. I want your only son. I want your only son whom you love. God says, I, doesn't, I don't want Ishmael. I don't want your servant Eliezer. I don't want Lot. God is putting his finger on the one area of Abraham's life that he loves, he treasures, and he values most. God is going to see just how far Abraham is willing to go in his service to him. And the, the test that God is bringing him into here, it's profoundly mysterious. 
The commentators will say, well, you know, child sacrifice was somewhat common in that culture. But we know how God feels about child sacrifice. He tells us in his word in Numbers 20, God forbids child sacrifice. He hates child sacrifice. And yet right here, it appears that he is leading Abraham into it. And and the unreasonableness of this This test is compounded by the fact that the one promise that God has brought Abraham into that that Abraham sometimes strays from and God is continually bringing him back to is the promise that you will have what? You'll have a son. And now that God has given him a son, he wants to take him away? We wouldn't fault Abraham for in this situation thinking, what kind of God am I following here? What kind of crazy plan is this? Unreasonable test, but what is Abraham's response? You see in verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. What is Abraham's response? It's immediate obedience. No hesitation, no arguing, no negotiation with God, immediate obedience. You've heard it said, delayed obedience is disobedience. See, here's the thing about God. He thinks he's God and he thinks we're not. And when he tells us to do something, he expects us to do it. And here, Abraham, immediate obedience. The question is, how in the world could Abraham demonstrate this kind of immediate obedience, absolute obedience to God in such a... Uh, an unreasonable test and request. And I think the answer is really quite simple, that Abraham knew that this was God's command. And at this point in Abraham's life, because certainly we know he didn't always respond this way, but at this point in Abraham's life, he's come to a place where he has learned that whatever God commands him to do, he could trust him without reservation. And so he may not have known where God was leading But he knew that it was God who was leading him into it. And I think the secret to going on in obedience with God, even when obedience promises no liberty, even when it threatens what we hold most dear, even sometimes when obedience to God seems self-detrimental, the key to going on in obedience with God is a clear understanding that God himself is good. And his plans and his purposes are good. And this is what Abraham has learned. And we know that God did have a promise or a purpose in this. His purpose, he didn't want the death of Isaac. Ultimately, what did God want? He wanted the life of Abraham. But Abraham didn't understand that at this point. Although it's apparent that Abraham knew that God would not back out on his promise We know this because what does Abraham say to the young men? He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. We're coming back, Abraham says. Abraham knows he's come to a place where he understands God will fulfill his promise. God has told him Isaac is going to have descendants. It's through Isaac that your descendants will be named. and, And Isaac can't have descendants if he dies on this mountain. And what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 is that he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Folks, that is faith. But Abraham knows 
No matter how bleak the circumstances, no matter how dark the clouds of God's commands, God is able to fulfill his purposes and his promises. I and the lad, we're going to go over there and worship and we will return. And notice how Abraham refers to this sacrifice. He says, we're going to go over there and do what? We're going to go over there and worship. You know, this is the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. First time we get the word worship, and what is it referring to? Is it referring to singing songs? We're going to go over there and I'm going to pull out the guitar. It's not referring to songs. It's not referring to going to church. It's not even referring to going on a mission trip. The primary meaning of worship for Abraham was going and taking that which he loved and treasured and valued most and giving it back to God out of a recognition of who he is. Folks, that's worship. And then in verses 6 and 7, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together, and Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And we could pause there and have an entire message on that one question, Where is the lamb? Because that's the question of the Old Testament, amen. Where is the lamb? And then we come to the New Testament. You know the first place the word lamb is used in the New Testament? John the Baptist sees Jesus, what he says, Behold the Lamb of God. There he is. But look in verse 8. It says, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place at which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. There's a powerful picture here of fellowship and intimacy between Abraham and his son Isaac. Isaac is perfect, perfectly obedient to the father. And it's interesting to note that, that most commentators, there's some discrepancy over the exact age. But, but what I found is that the commentators will, will say that a, uh, Isaac is somewhere between the age of 25 and 37. Now, that's not how I normally think of this story. I tend to think of Isaac as some 10-year-old boy. But here's the point you're intended to see. Abraham's somewhere around 125 years old, and Isaac is 25. Meaning, if Isaac doesn't want to go to that altar, is that 125-year-old man going to get him there? There's Isaac in the, all the strength of his youth. And he goes willingly, he goes submissively to the will of the Father. You might even say he's led like a lamb to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. He's perfectly obedient. And Abraham comes to the point of taking the knife. Don't you love this about God? God waits till the very last second. It wasn't enough to take a three days journey or, or load the donkey or split the wood or even to lay Isaac on the altar. Because when it comes to commitment to God, close isn't good enough. 
God waits till it's almost as good as done. And then the angel of the Lord steps in. And now I personally believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We know it's God. Now, if you don't agree with me, you can be wrong. That's okay. But I believe, and what a powerful picture here that Christ himself stops in here at this moment and says to Abraham, not now. Spare the lad. And then what does God say? Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now I know. Did God already know Abraham's heart? Absolutely he did. So why put him through all this? Why bring him to this place? Because God longs to see his heart demonstrated in a physical way through obedience. We all, you got wives, some of you got your wives here. My wife knows I love her. But there are times she longs to see that love demonstrated in a physical way. See, God doesn't want a people who simply love his word. God doesn't want a people who simply admire his word. God wants a people who do his word. Because listen, it's possible to be theoretically committed to the word of God and yet living in sin and disobedience. You ever been there? What God wants is people who do his word. I don't know how many times I tell my boys as a parent, I don't know if you as parents ever say this, but when are you going to learn to just do what you're told? It always works out better when you just do what you're told. I wonder how many times God has said of me, when will you just learn to do what you're told? God says, now I know because you've not withheld your son. God wants absolute obedience, a people of limitless trust. God says, now, now that you've held nothing back. You know, I, as I studied this, there's one, we all kind of long to hear God say of us, well done, good and faithful servant. As I study this, you know what I long to hear God say to me one day? You held nothing back. In service to me, you held nothing back. You see what God is doing in Abraham's life, what he's longing for in my life, in your life, throughout his words, of people who will trust and obey. When we sing that song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Such simple words, but such profound truth that really the keys, everybody's looking for the keys, the spiritual success and growth, and the keys really to unlocking all that God wants to do in your life, in my life, is simple trust and absolute obedience to his word. In verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns, and Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it'll be provided. What an amazing moment for Abraham. Just as he's about to take the life of his own son, God provides a substitutionary sacrifice to take the place of his son. God provides a ram in the thicket, and that ram will take the place of his son Isaac and bring salvation to him. And the name is, the, the, the place is named Jehovah Jireh. 
God will provide. We throw that name of God around a lot, Jehovah Jireh. But notice here the primary context of God who provides is not providing finances. It's not about paying the bills, providing a job or a car, although God does provide those things. But the primary context is providing a substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac can live. And then we see the reward. Look at verses 15 through 24 very briefly. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing. And you have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I'll greatly bless you and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God reiterates it. As I read this, I think of Saul. You remember, uh, I think 1 Samuel 13, where Samuel says to King Saul, wait for me to offer the incense and the sacrifice and you'll win the victory. The victory is yours if you'll just wait for me. And you remember what happens? Saul starts looking at the enemy. The enemy's growing bigger. His group's really small. And what does he do? He offers the sacrifice. And right when he offers the sacrifice, because Samuel's lady's at a ball game, a barbecue. I don't know where Samuel's at. He's a late preacher. And he shows up. He looks up. Saul offers the incense, which he was told not to do. And he looks up. And who's coming? There's Samuel. And remember what Samuel says? amazing passage. He says it basically to King Saul, God wanted to do so much through you, but you wouldn't obey him. And now we're going to have to get somebody else. I think it's one of the most sad passages in all the God's word. And right here, God says to Abraham, because you've obeyed, now we're going to crank the blessings into motion. Isn't that good? And then in verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. This is interesting. These verses almost seem inconsequential. You think, why is this here? God's basically telling Abraham, you're going to have nephews. Well, big deal. So what? Well, look on. By the way, if you're looking for the names of two boys, here you go, verse 21, Uz and Buzz. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kimuel, the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel became the father of who? Rebekah. Now, folks, this just gives me chills right here. Because you know what God is saying to Abraham? I'm already working on a little girl for that little boy of yours. And they're going to have some children. And they're going to become 12 tribes. And they're going to come this great nation. You know, the point there is God is telling Abraham that your obedience doesn't just affect you. That as a result of Abraham's obedience to God, there will be generations that come after. There will be an entire nation of people that will come after him and rise up and call him blessed because he obeyed God in his day. And the question that I would have for all of us this morning that I ask of myself is, who's going to later rise up and call me blessed because I obeyed God today? And I think... And don't mishear me because God alone is responsible for his work. But as I think about that, 
as I told Pastor Steve yesterday, I rise up and call him blessed because if he doesn't step out in faith to come over here and do a new work, I'm probably not here today. Now, I know God, don't mishear me, God can do whatever he wants to do. But if that man's not faithful in his day, not only am I not here, I don't know if this church is still here. Do you see the consequences? And I'm sure Pastor Steve didn't think of it in that way when he was in that moment. But God just asked him to move. And even when the odds were stacked against him, he obeyed. And my question to you today is, in what area is God asking you to obey him? And what generations of people are going to come after you who say, thank you for being faithful in your day to step out into an area of the unknown, even when you didn't have all the answers, to do something that was crazy and scary that is going to affect generations of people that come after you? That's the kind of obedience that God is looking for. You know, really, when you look at this passage, there's two main points. And the first is theological. If you miss this point, you miss the whole point of the text. The point of this, the, the really beauty of this text is, is that it's a picture of atonement. Amen? I mean, right here, we get a picture of substitutionary sacrifice for sins. I love this because God's kind of getting down on our level and helping us to better understand the gift of his son. Because I don't know about you, but I have a hard time getting into the mind of God. But I can identify with Abraham. I can identify with a dad who has a son that he loves. And I got two boys that I dearly love. And there are all kinds of points along the way when I would do anything. When I see them in pain and I see them hurting, I don't know about you, but I'd do anything to trade places with them. And then I start to think about giving my boys up for anybody. And what does Scripture say about what God has done for us? For God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would, might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, if we're, if we're not careful, we'll begin to picture the atonement of Christ as some android offering a robot. When in fact, it was a father giving his son. It was a gut-wrenching sacrifice birthed out of his incredible love for you. That God took his one and only begotten son, his beloved son, in whom was all his delight. And he took him by the hand and he led him up a hill and he put wood on his back. And he gave him up not for good men, but for filthy, wretched sinners like me. And there was no ram in the thicket. No voice from heaven saying, spare the child. He bore our sin and he died for us. I don't know if any of you need to hear this this morning. But God loves you. On the authority of God's holy word, he sent his son to die for you. He can't go any further than that. Then the question then becomes, well, how do you respond to that kind of deity? How do you respond to that kind of love? I mean, what should we do in light of what he's done for us? Is it enough to just kind of tip the hat and say thank you and go on about your day? Is it enough to say a few blessings over a meal and 
Maybe read the Bible once a day. Paul said in Romans, Therefore I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. The word the spiritual is the Greek word logikane. It means logical. Paul is saying the only logical response to a God who would love us this kind of way is to offer everything back to him. And what God wants and what God desires is total obedience. Listen, the Christian life, we all know this. The Christian life is not asking God to bless your life. The Christian life is laying all of it down. And the beautiful part is, when did Abraham really discover life? When he laid Isaac down. That's when it starts. That's when we crank the blessings into motion. Now, why do I bring all this up? Just in quick closing. Why do I bring all this up? Mark gave me church planning for the glory of God. I think he gave me a general general topic, so he'd give me some freedom, but... But when I thought about that, here's what I've learned in, in my short time in ministry. The greatest deterrent to what God wants to do in my life, the greatest deterrent to what God wants to do in my church is not the people that are in the church. It's not the money. Do you know the greatest deterrent to God working in my life, the greatest deterrent to God working in my church? It's right here. And I'm constantly praying, God, protect Lenexa Baptist Church from Chad. Because sometimes I start to think that I got it figured out. And I realize I got to die. And, and listen, replanting requires death. And I know we're not talking about killing churches here. I don't know about all that. But I do know this, that Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You can't follow Jesus, and I guarantee you can't enter the work of replanting and revitalization unless you're willing to die every day to yourself, to your pride, to your own plans, to your own dreams, and lay it all down. Really, to me, when you think about the dying that involved, I mean, you've heard from Bud Jones and the pastor who was at Bonner Springs Baptist and Tom Willoughby who was here. You talk about dying. When it starts affecting your paycheck, now you're talking dying. And on the other side, there's a lot of dying on this side too. And then we're reminded too, what did Paul say? Whatever we lay down, whatever things were gained to me, I now count as loss. More than that, I count all things to be rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Whatever we lay down, it pales in comparison to what Christ laid down. Amen. And it pales in comparison to knowing him. I want us to conclude one, th- one deal. Ted Trailer, I, I went to a conference like this. I didn't learn it from Tom Rainer. I had to get that name in one last time. <laughs> Ted Trailer, I went to a conference in Montgomery, Alabama in 2000, about 2007. And I think he learned it from Adrian Rogers. And, and if you're able, you're physically able, I want to invite you to participate with me. But Adrian Rogers taught him. He taught it to us. What he would do, Ted Trailer does this. He says every Sunday morning before he preaches, he gets on his knees. If, you, if you're physically able, if you're not, you can stand up and do it. Sometimes he stands up and does it. I do it every Sunday morning before I preach. I try to do it every day. But what he does, and if you want to join me, we're just going to pray. He gets on his knees.
And if you're not physically able, there's no shame here. However you want to do this. What he does is he first puts his hands in the air. If you want to just put your hands in the air. And just pray with me and I'll direct you. Father, we just praise you. We put our hands in the air. We get our knees. Not because you hear us when we're in a different physical position. But because we want to demonstrate the attitude of our heart. And God, we want to humble ourselves before you today. And we lift our hands towards heaven. And we praise you that you're in control. We praise you that you're God of all creation. We praise you that you loved us and you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. We praise you, Jesus, that you gave up the glory of heaven. You humbled yourself and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for the work you've done in our hearts to convict us of sin and draw us to Christ. We praise you, Holy Spirit, that you never give up on us. Even when we fail, you're always faithful. And then we want to stretch out our arms in the form of a cross, and today, Lord, we say to you, we want to die. For I've been crucified with Christ. And yet I live, not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. God, there's nothing good in me besides Jesus. I want to die to my flesh for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. God, we want to die. And then we put our hands out in front of us to receive. And we say to you, Lord, we put all of our life in front of you. We want to live open-handedly. The only thing that is sacred in our life today is you. And as scary as it is to pray this prayer, Lord, we say, whatever you desire, do it, Jesus. Because we say to you today, you're good. And your plans are good. We also put out our hands because we want to receive the Spirit. We want to be filled with the Spirit. And we know it's not about getting more of the Spirit, but it's giving more Spirit the control of our lives. And so today we turn over control. We ask you to fill us with your Spirit and fill us with your Word. As we pour ourselves out in ministry, God, fill us up to overflowing so that everybody that bumps into us will see the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, no matter how hurtful people can be. Pray that they would see Jesus in us. Lord, work in our hearts for the glory of Christ, and we pray this in His holy, holy name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.